Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh, man, I spent, like, a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy, like, a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. Welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football, sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Well, this episode, we're going to do a little bit of a pivot, in a way. Um, but as, you know, rather than have a, an executive on, or a coach, or a player, uh, we're going to be speaking with a member of a team who deals with them on a daily basis, not necessarily as someone who is in a position of authority, like a head coach or another part of the coaching staff or an owner, but a gentleman who actually deals with them on a day-to-day basis and a week-to-week basis when it comes to uh, clothing them and dealing with the intricacies when it comes to players and what they're going to wear each week. So this episode, we're going to be speaking with a gentleman who was a an equipment manager for quite a few years in the Arena Football League. His story was so extensive that we are actually going to be breaking this episode up into two different parts. So you will be able to hear the first part this week, and very shortly you will be hearing the second part of this uh, very fascinating behind-the-scenes look at a team. So this episode, the for, well, for these next two episodes, we're going to be speaking with Steve Smith. Again, he is a he was a uh, an, as an assistant equipment manager and also an equipment manager for quite a few teams in the Arena Football League. We really do hope that you listen that you like listening to uh, his story. With us this episode, uh, it's somebody we have not had on the show before. And we're looking to hear a lot of the insight of what goes on behind the scenes with a person who isn't necessarily involved in the day-to-day operations, but in many ways he is. Because he's the one, if you you love how these teams look on the field, this is the gentleman that you want to speak with. On the line with us now is uh, Stephen Smith. Hey, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Tim, for, for having me, man. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I, one thing I want to ask, I mean, obviously we could, we could go right off the bat and start in 92 when you're with the night, but what I wanted to ask you (laughs) is this, um, was, was getting into being an, uh, an equipment manager originally what you wanted to do and then what pointed you in that direction when you, I guess we can say how you heard about the arena football league. 
Well, um, I'll start with the I'll start with the second part of that question first. Yeah. Um, growing up in New Orleans, um, you know, I, I grew up in you know you're a CFL guy. Yeah. Um, I, I I was kind of like the weird kid because I liked watching the CFL and Aussie Rules football and um, arena football and ESPN um, when there was really nothing else. <laughs> there really wasn't any other sports on TV. Yeah. And arena football always fascinated me. And it's, uh, it's, it's someplace that it's a league that I, I had, I had aspired to work in when I was a teenager. So, um, yeah, I got my start in equipment management, you know, way before 92. Um, I was helping out two leads men's basketball program. Cause my dad and my, my father, God rest them. And, and, uh, the head coach at the time, Perry Clark were good friends. And so I hung out around the program and, um, you know, kind of got my start in the business that way. And, um, an equipment manager at the professional level at that point in my life is what I wanted to, is what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, what many of my friends don't know is that like, I try, I actually worked the new Orleans Knights, the new Orleans Knights is nice <laughs> first tryout in the Superdome in february of 91 oh okay Okay. it was either february 90 it was somewhere around there um and they had put down parts of the the out and the the field that we used was actually part of the the superdome's uh baseball turf because they had um they had three different sets of of turf so they had um they had two football fields they had one that uh the saints and two and two lane played their home games on okay there was one exclusively used for the sugar bowl. And then there was the baseball field. And, um, a lot of people may not remember that the Superdome used to be configured for multiple sports. Well, uh, prior to Katrina in 05. Right. So our game field that we played on with the night was actually the center field portion of the baseball field. And so when we did the first trial at the Superdome, they painted the field, they painted lines on it. And put it down like in what the Superdome's basketball configuration would have been at the time to see what it would look like. And so we did our tryout in there. It was really crazy because it wasn't open to the public. And uh, Eddie Kayat was the head coach that year. And so I met, I got to meet Coach Kayat and, uh, and Coach Jackson, who was um, offensive coordinator. And um, I was supposed to like go to work training camp for the night in '91. And more than I show up nobody's there. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, well, I got a little disillusioned. And so, um, 92 rolled around and I tried it again and went to the night's office out in Harahan. Um, and at that point, well, then at that point, when we started out, I started out, we were on, we were on Jefferson highway, um, in, in uh, river Ridge, not Harahan. Um, and, you know, walked in and said, Hey, you know, I want I want to try to help last year. And a couple people in the front office remembered me and, and so I went out and the next day I was working training camp and that the rest, as they say, is history. So, so you went, you tried to do it in 91 and, and you're saying nobody was there. I mean, how did it make you feel? Did you feel <laughs> that the AFL was a fly by night thing? Because remember at the time there really was no indoor, there was no indoor football, really. I mean, arena yeah. football had been around since, you know, since 87, you know, it's a new thing. What were your mm-hmm. initial thoughts when you, thought you could try, you know, try out to do, to do the equipment manager stuff in 91 and nobody be there. Well, 18 year old me was a little disillusioned. Okay. This was my first, uh, my first exposure to professional sports. Right. And, 
I, I, you know, I woke up, you know, I went to bed early that the night before and woke up in the morning with all the fervor in the world. And, um, and, it, <laughs> and the crazy part was, um, I wasn't so good academically. So my, my, my opportunities to get my driver's license didn't occur until I went to college. Okay. So I was still in high school at the time I was entering my, my senior year in, in high school. And, uh, and my dad took me, my, I remember my, my dad took me out to the, the, and we just kind of sat around and waited and waited and waited for nobody to show up. And, um, we're like, okay, well, let's go home. Um, and I, you know, I, I got my own car a year later and tried it again while I was, a uh, a student at Delgado community college. I was the equipment manager and, and the, the athletic trainer there for the department. And, um, you know, got the job like about halfway through basketball season, just, you know, out of pure, um, I guess just tenacity. Cause I just kept going after it because it's something I really wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I put it on, I put it on the list of, I put it on the list of my goals and was to work in professional football as an equipment manager. And, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think I'd be able to get it done at 19, but you know, <laughs> there I was 19 years old, man, you know, um, short little fat, ugly Steve, you know, <laughs> Standing on the side, standing on the sideline, and you know, I'm at practice at John Curtis High School, going, "What the hell am I doing here? It's crazy, man." But you know, it was it was a really great way to start. It really was. I mean, we had a, a really good coaching staff. Um, you know, Walt Hausman, who I think if if you the listeners know really know their arena football history. Mm-hmm. So you know, how, well, Walt was on that staff. Ken Meyer, who was an offensive coordinator. Um, he worked for the 49ers with Bill Walsh um, and under Chuck Knox in Seattle. He was our OC. Um, Brian Gardner was our defensive coordinator, and Brian actually had um, a cup of coffee in the AFL with Pittsburgh, I think, in 88 89 before getting hurt. Um, uh, Ted Heath, who was, uh, he was our line coach, um, he came to us from Saskatchewan in the CFL. Um, and then Walt had just retired. Um, had just retired from playing. Um, what a lot of people may not know about Walt is that he was actually on the Saints strike team in 86 and it stuck around on the practice squad with the Saints in like 87 and 88. Um, oh, shut up, Siri. Sorry. It's okay. Um, <laughs> my iPad from work is just real sensitive. Um, you know, and then, you know, Walt, Walt was good enough to, you know, he, he called on with the night. Um, in 91 and I think he, he, he got a back, he, he got a back injury or something that prevented him from playing. So, um, so we made him a coach and, you know, after Eddie and, uh, after coach Kai and his staff left and Vegas came on or, mm-hmm. or Vince Gibson, I should say, um, you know, <laughs> God rest Vince. I love Vince to death. He was great to work for Stevie. <laughs> I just remember hearing him scream my name across the practice field every day. He's a great guy. I mean, me being a diehard Tulane fan, I'm like, oh my god, I get to hang around Vince Gibson like every day. <laughs> um, and you know, Vince, he had such a great career, great career coach in college college football, and uh, went on to run a very successful travel agency with his son. Um, but Vegas had no idea about arena football. He had none. Yeah. So. Um, Hope that answers your question. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you is this, and I'm sure people, now that you've given your your history, of how you got the job in New Orleans in '92. What happened to the guy in '91? <laughs> you know, you, you no, well. So I was the actually the assistant in '92. The guy I worked for, right? 
was a, a little skinny Creole guy in uh, Louisiana Creole, not Haitian Creole, but um, little skinny light, uh, little skinny Creole guy by the name of Keith Sumas who lived out in New Orleans East and went to Abramson High School. Okay, uh, and then Southern and then Southern Miss for his undergrad. Um, Keith Keith was the assistant the year before. Okay, and then I can't remember the guy's name. I think the guy's name was David or something like that. It was Dave something. And God, Tim, you're really making me go back in my memory warehouse and pull this, all this stuff out, man. Um, so Dave was the equipment guy and the trainer in the year before, and Keith was his assistant. Okay. And Dave left, and they elevated Keith to the head, and Keith needed an assistant. So they hired me. They paid me 500 bucks, um, and I had to pay my own travel expenses, which I didn't mind at the time because yeah. I got to stay in some nice hotels for free when we went on the road, especially to Orlando. Of course. Um, but yeah, it just it, it just happened that way, man. And it just it was by the grace of God and just pure luck, I guess. Man. That's that's cool. Now, I'm sure you know people who, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know people see their team on the field, they see how good they mm-hmm. look, you know, and and they may not think anything of it. So for, for those who are uneducated when it comes to the life of an equipment manager or assistant equipment manager. Before we continue on with your career, what give give us a little bit of a Cliff Notes version of what it what a not necessarily a day because we know it's more than a day, but what is it what is a life like for an assistant equipment manager for a pro team? It is um, long days. Start off first off, mm-hmm. it's long days. Um, especially you know it's it's easier for. It's easier for a, a one uh, for one person to do it mm-hmm. um, with a smaller team, like you know, like the size of the teams in, in the arena football and in the, in the AFL and AF two. Um, it's kind of more difficult when you get to teams of larger size, you know, like uh, college football, um, you know, in the NFL. The NFL, I mean, the equipment guy, the, the equipment staffs. You know, there's one there's one head guy and two assistants that are full time, and then. You have a cadre of of uh, of, a, uh, of just either seasonal or you know game day assistants that help out with you know the load in and load out. Um, but it's long days, man. I mean, the travel's a lot mm-hmm. because especially with the Arena Football League, the way it was, you know, it was a 16 week season, and um, if you played like we did in Tampa in 2001, where we played, you played two preseason games. Um, in those years and we split, we had a, a home in, when I was in Milwaukee in 2000, we had two home games in preseason, but in Tampa, we had a home game against Orlando. And then we went to Buffalo, um, to end the preseason and, you know, to <laughs> have to pack all that stuff for one person and try to prepare for all contingencies. Um, it's, it's not bad, you know, um, but it's, it's a lot of long days. It's a lot of long nights. Um, but it is you get to be with a group of men and in some cases women it's depending on what sport you work in mm-hmm. but in this case men um you get to be with a group of individuals men and women who are in the front office um your teammates the coaches you work under um you know and you get to you get to build bonds with those people um that last a lifetime um, and you know, you get to see the product of your hard work on the field and right. the players work just to, you know, play, the players work hard. The coaches work hard. 
you know, equipment, man, equipment staffs and athletic training staffs. Um, you know, we work just equally as hard. Just people just don't see us unless something happens. Right. Um, you know, I, I got to be, I was very fortunate in the fact that I got to do it for, you know, almost, almost two decades, oh, just over two decades yeah. um, before moving into coaching full time now. Um, I would not trade it for the, I wouldn't trade it for anything, man, especially my years in the, in the AFL and the deuce. I mean, as somebody who grew up loving arena football and having the opportunity to, to work in it full time, like I was able to for, you know, the seasons I was able to, it was really a great opportunity. Um, you know, but to, to kind of get back to the equipment, you know, it's getting to choose uniforms and helmet colors and helmet styles and, shoulder pad styles and assisting players with trying to get gear. I mean, you know, making deals, you know, know, packing for road trips, driving equipment. I mean, loading planes, unloading planes, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it's, it can be tough. I mean, if you're not built for it, that's the the crazy thing is like, it's just like any other calling in life. It does, you don't find it, it finds you. And then once it finds you, it kind of, grabs you with both hands. And as they said, in you know, as they said, in um, the last starfighter, it kind of grabs you with both hands and holds on tight, you know? Um, and like I said, man, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was, I had a hell of a run and to do what I got to do for the time I got to do with it. It was just absolutely amazing. I can imagine. Now, did it bother you at all that the technically, you know, the night had no owner technically, did it bother you at all? Or were you just, were you just really concentrating on trying to make the team look as good as they did? Well, it, I'll put it this way. If I knew then what I knew now, I would have been completely unhinged. Um, <laughs> but so here, okay. So the whole story about the Knights ownership is this. So sports management group is the international, as we, if, if you're into sport, if you're into sports ownership and management mm-hmm. and arena management, so SMG uh, operates arenas and venues around the world, and many okay. in New Orleans. They're also <laughs> and many in New Orleans. Actually, just about almost every single one in New Orleans, exactly. except for uh, except for Lakefront Arena. Yeah. So SMG, the there was no there the night originally did not have an owner. So SMG decided that they were going to own the team for a year and see how it goes. Right. So the attendance actually exceeded their expectations and they were very well managed. Uh, Bill Curl, who was a, a gentleman who's not with us anymore. Um, I believe he's not with us anymore. Uh, Bill is a great guy. He was a two lane guy. Um, I got to know Bill a little bit. In my years at Tulane. Um, Bill was kind of like the de facto general manager. Okay. Um, and he, he let the, the folks at the Superdome did all of the business side of it, sales, marketing, all that. And then Coach Kai and his staff held all the football operations, and it was very, it was very well ran. Um, there was a, a really an air of respect between the fans and the and the organization and and the organization and the Superdome itself. Um, and then they found an owner, and, and that guy's name was Mike McBath. So Mike McBath at the time he was um, living, he was from originally from Buffalo, New York. Played at Penn State under Joe Pa. He was a linebacker there, seventies, early eighties. Early eighties, I, I can't recall which. But um, Mr. McBath was in finance, and he always wanted to own a professional sports team. Right. So the night were up for sale, and so he bought the team. Um, they, him, and SMG came to an agreement along with in concert with the Arena Football League, and so Mr. McMath purchased the team. 
and he had a couple of uh, had a couple of silent partners, um, or not really so much silent, but just uh, smaller stakes in ownership. And uh, God, I can't remember for the life of me, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy that founded uh, Fat Tuesday's daiquiris, right? Okay. So he owns all of the New Orleans original daiquiris locations. It has a company called Jazzland. It had a, I don't know if he still does, but it had a company based in Harahan called Jazzland Distributing Incorporated. Now, Jazzland, if you if if I remember this correctly, they had a warehouse in Elmwood, which is kind of like a, an industrial part of Metairie, um, which isn't too far from where we practiced, and it's about 20 minutes from the Superdome. Right. Um, that's where like all the cups and all of the drink mixes and everything would get distributed centrally out of that location to all the New Orleans original Dockery's locations. Okay. So he had just started opening up franchises in Orlando and I think um, down in Mexico. And so he was a small he was a small owner he was a small stake owner in the team. In week seven is when the was when the team was taking was taken by the AFL out of Mike McBath's hands. Now, the way I found out about this was, um, so I had the Zach Morris brick phone, okay? That's how cool I thought I was at the time. <laughs> I had this big old, we, we were one of the first, we were one of the first professional sports teams in Southeast Louisiana um, at the time in the New Orleans area to sign with Bell South Mobility. So part of the deal with Bell South Mobility is that the team got cell phones, and the only cell phone that they had at the time was the big Zach Morris brick phone. Yeah. And I thought it was cool because I watched Saved by the Bell and I'm like, I got the same <laughs> phone that Zach Morris does. So I'm like, wicked cool, right? So I'm at a sporting goods store. We're doing a public appearance, and it's Bruce Clark, Ted Garcia, somebody else, and myself, and I'm going to represent the team. And so I get a phone call, and we kind of were hearing, we were kind of hearing rumblings that, that day at practice, right, about this occurring. And we can kind of we kind of saw it coming because less and less money was being spent when we were on the road. Like when we had our when we had our our, two, our 1992 opener, it was in Charlotte against the Rage, and it was the Rage's first home game, I think, in their franchise's history. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was at the Charlotte Coliseum. Great crowd, it had about eighteen and a half thousand. Um, it was, they, they sold like two thousand tickets, but they had like probably one of the largest walk up crowds and the history of being a football, like the top, um, the bowl was like two levels and they had the top level. They had the top of the bowl, like curtained off. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to drop the curtain and put it that way. And Denny Petro, God rest him, who was a good friend of mine. Um, after another indoor football experience, Denny DP was the, the GM there. Um, he and I swapped stories about that in Miami in 05. Um, but you know, we stayed in a really nice hotel. We got fed really well. And then as the season progressed, like we were still staying in nice hotels, but we weren't getting as fed as much. And our per, our per diem started dropping off. Right. And then, in, and then in week seven, the, the league took over ownership of the team. And that's when everything changed. Okay. Um, and that's when things really started going south for us. Okay. So it kind of, in, in seeing like how things were ran, like the league, I don't want to say like they ran us into the ground, but uh, we, pretty much did it on our own without any help from the league. And it, and it's interesting that that year also was the same year that the whole LA Wings thing occurred where the it was the Arco Arena in Sacramento owned the team mm-hmm. that year. 
So it's it's almost the exact same type of thing, if I remember correct. I think it was ninety two. Um, yeah. What was it? What was it like being a an assistant uh, uh, equipment manager the year following Zubaz? I have to ask because that's come up so much <laughs> in in recent oh, days with the, with the games just popping up over on the Arena Football TV YouTube channel. It's like, oh, I mean, you go from Zubaz and you come in '92. <laughs> When you started, did you think you were going to be using the Zubaz stuff? or Because I think it was only a, a one-year thing with Zubaz, but maybe you can shed a little bit of light on that. Yeah, so so for those who don't know, so Bike Athletic um, struck up a deal with Zubaz. And mm-hmm. so Zubaz was a, um, a leisure wear company that got in, the, the guys who founded the company were like into weightlifting and stuff and wanted comfortable clothing. So they, they did a licensing deal with the NFL. And so bike picked up on this deal on, on this trend. And so they were like, Hey, you know, what'd be cool. It's like, if we did Zubaz uniforms for a select number of teams in the AFL, well, it just so happens that like they only had four patterns that they use for the for NFL teams. And it just so happened that those four patterns matched teams in the arena football league. <laughs> and it just so happens that the New Orleans night, we used the same Zubaz pattern that the Chicago bears did. Tampa Bay used the giants and Orlando used the Falcons, but they didn't never wore the uniforms. Um, I can't remember somebody else used. Oh, oh, um, Albany. I think Denver used the oh, Albany. That's right, Albany did. And Denver, yeah. Denver. And they also. used the big. Yeah. And they and Denver also. So, so, um, Denver was the only team that wore the Zubaz that did not match an NFL team. That actually matched the Golden State Warriors. I think at the time. Okay. Um, Albany wore the Bengals. That's right. Oh, okay. okay. So, and I, and I, and I knew about it and I was like really, really hoping that I would be able to come in and like, we have these Zubaz uniforms and I walk in and like, Hey, are we wearing the Zubaz uniforms? No. Oh, <laughs> well, so I go walk in this, I go walk in the equipment room, which was a classroom at John Curtis, John Curtis Christian Academy. So I go walk in the classroom where our, where our gear is. I'm like, well, where are the jerseys? Oh, the players took them. What do you mean the players took them? Yeah, the players took them. The home and the away. We had none of the jerseys left, <laughs> but we had tons of pants. <laughs> so we used the we used the Zubaz practice pants for for we used the, the Zubaz game pants for practice, and we had some of the gear left over. The funny thing is, is that none of it was like embellished, like mm-hmm. what we say in the business, or none of it had logos on it. So it was just all like the orange, navy, and white you know, Zubaz on it. Yeah. So we didn't have any hats. We didn't, you know, or anything like that. And I was, you know, I'm a hat guy. I got about a hundred or so at my mom's house in New Orleans and another 50 here where I live in South Carolina now. And, um, I grabbed a hat and that was my hat for the season. <laughs> that was my hat for the season. And the, the funny thing is that I think up until 2008 or nine, my mom still had the Zubaz pants that I gave her. I gave like two. I gave a pair of Zubaz pants to my brother. <laughs> uh, he threw them. I think he threw them. He he lost them in Katrina. Uh, a pair to my dad, which I think he wound up just throwing away because he thought they were ugly as sin. And my mom, because my mom just keeps everything, and I think she finally gave them up in like oh eight or oh nine. Okay. But the, but yeah, the Zub. Oh man, well I would have loved Tim. I would have loved for us to wear that Zubaz stuff and. 
I got to later on, if you remind, if, if I remember, I got to tell you the story. I got to tell you the story about trying to, um, I asked Markham, I, I worked with Tim Markham at Tampa Bay, God rest him in 2001. Yeah. And I wanted to bring the Zubaz back so bad in the storm. <laughs> and he said, absolutely. He's like, he's like, Steve, that is the most God awful look or stuff. Not, I'm, I can't curse. So I'm trying, I'm going to really try not to curse. Um, so you don't bleep anything. Like that's the most god awful stuff I've ever seen in my life. I hated those uniforms. Like as soon as I got he got the job here, I hid them things way deep, and I it ain't gonna happen. And well, the I'm funny like, thing uh, is, is Markham uh, and we're skipping ahead a little bit. Markham had didn't have to deal with them uh, because he was in Detroit. Detroit didn't wear them, and the only you know his former team, the Denver Dynamite, did. So. Yes. He never really had to, to deal with them, so to speak. So it's <laughs> No, no, but he could not uh he Tim hated that you know, he hated that whole uniform program. It's I mean Yeah, even with them them bringing that stuff back today now, Steve, you know, it's it's what's it, it was so bad it, it's good and that's you know, as we know with clothing styles, stuff comes back <laughs> and disappears again. So it's <laughs> I I would I would love to see somebody try to like reinvent the Zubaz uniforms for the arena, for the arena football teams. Mm-hmm. That would be so awesome. I mean, I know it's never going to happen again, but I mean, you know, you got this, the, you just, it, it's just with, with all of these people who do uniforms and stuff like in different parts of the world, oh, for sure. somebody has to like find a template for this and go, oh. dude, make this and sell it. You're going to make bank. You won't even realize it. Well, and then we'll just bring back porthole mesh. It'll be awesome. And with the fire, the, oh, oh god! I actually have—I'm lucky enough to to, ha, to own an Albany Firebirds away Zubaz. And yes, oh, that mesh, man. that mesh, holy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that mesh. Yeah, porthole mesh was really, really big in the eighties, in the six, in the seventies, eighties, and parts of the nineties. And I'm so glad as like an equipment, as a former equipment guy, like one of my equipment manager days. I am so glad that that porthole mesh went away because man, that just, it looked all types of awful. And like, if you watch the videos like on YouTube on arena football TV, yeah. like if you watch those videos, you realize, God, they look great, but they look God awful. Yeah, they do. And, and I think at that time, <laughs> and you would know this uh, being the equipment manager, weren't those considered the quote unquote tearaway jerseys? No, those, those were not tearaway okay. jerseys. Okay. What they were, they were, they were shimmel cut. And okay. what, what a shimmel cut is, is, it's basically it's a, it was waist length, so they weren't those jerseys were not meant to be tucked in, and okay. like we want, no, because weren't. the because because the the material was was because of the way the material was made, if like you pulled if you pulled on it a certain like at a certain strength, yeah, the jersey would just come right off. Okay, because it was so poorly put together. Uh, you being a part of uh, the equipment manager family, you've you've had to deal with obviously technology that. People look back to today, and you're like, "How did you deal with it?" Now, I, the only thing that could really bring up to that, because it said you were you were the ones who were outfitting the players with all their uniforms and stuff and, and equipment, was dealing with Max Pro helmets, because Max Pro at that <laughs> Max Pro at that time was a major. Well, it was a major, you know, oh. advertiser and and uh, equipment oh provider for the league. Um, hey, let. Hey, let let's not forget the Kasemko shoulder pads. Yeah, those two. <laughs> yeah, those two. Oh my God! Let me tell you what, dude. Thank God, okay, for thank God that Noxie decided. Noxie is like the national uh, the the national board 
that certifies athletic equipment, right. like protective equipment, helmets and everything, right? Yes. So apparently something happened with Max Pro after the nineteen ninety one calendar year. Mm-hmm. And anybody who reconditioned football helmets in the country were not allowed to send those helmets back out because the liners in them were so bad. It was a here's the crazy thing. The 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 polycarbonate that was used to comprise the com, the comprise the shell yeah. was really really good. It was the inside of the helmet that was really 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 bad. <laughs> and like just recently, like I had I had my I had the last New Orleans night helmet that I put together until um, until I moved here two years ago, and it's now uh, it's now owned by a friend of mine who. Um, used to work for the Saints, who was uh, probably one of our biggest New Orleans Knight fans, nice. um, unbeknownst to me. Nice. Um, but that helmet was really, really bad. And the Kasemko pads that we that we used that that we barely used the Kasemko pads because they were just so bad. Yeah. Oh God, those were horrible. Yeah, and, like and I think if anybody has bought on one of the Max Pro helmets, because there's been a few that have popped up on eBay in the past couple months and stuff like that. If you see the underside mm-hmm. of them, you look at today's helmets. <laughs> It's like night and day. It's like night it and day. So it's, it is, it's almost as bad as those bike helmets that they gave us in 2000 and 2001. Oh, really? They're oh. almost as bad. Oh, man. <laughs> the Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash AF Hall of Fame to join. Obviously, you know, something brand new to you, um, you know, being with a pro franchise and stuff like that. I know the season didn't go all that well, but doesn't mean even though the team went 0 and 10, doesn't mean there are a lot of stories to tell. For you, what was it like being your first, being you know, part of a pro franchise, first ever game road game? On top of that, you're talking about Charlotte before. Do you get? Are you able to get jitters, or is it because you're just so concentrating on getting the team to look good? No, it's just caught up in a moment. Yeah, I mean, you you realize that you know, for me, having never. The, having never worked in pro sports, you know, up until that point, you know, I'm 19 years old. Um, I'm still living with my mom and dad out in Metairie. I'm going to college at the same time. I, I just got done with a, a, a back-to-back bas- uh, basketball and baseball seasons. I was still affiliated with Tulane's men's basketball program at the time. And I was just, you know, it was just like another thing to roll into. And it was just another experience to have. And, you know, I mean, working with Tulane, you know, we got to play some really big games. You know, I was, so I was kind of used to being in the moment. I mean, I was at Memphis, right. uh, Penny Hardaway's. I was on the bench at when we played at Memphis, Penny Hardaway's senior year, uh, there for his senior game when we shut him down. Uh, I was in the I was in Fogelman when we beat Louisville in overtime when we were in the Metro Conference. So being in that moment, you know, I, being around Tulane's men's program, men's basketball program, growing up, you know, from like 16 to 19. Um, kind of prepared me for that moment, I guess, lack of better, you know, a lack of speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're really not, the thing about it is, it's like for me being a sports fan and being a fan of arena football, 
and being on the bench my first game, our first exhibition game in 92 in Lafayette at Cajun Dome against the Thunderbolts and seeing Major Harris, a guy that you know I saw on television mm-hmm. play quarterback at West Virginia, and now here I am, I'm standing on the same field with him. I'm like, dude, is this really happening? I mean, <laughs> like, okay, this is really happening. And then just, you know, the game starts and then it's, and then it's the game. You just kind of get into the flow of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, the preseason kind of prepared us because we didn't play it. We didn't play a, a home preseason game in 92. Right. Uh, we played our first one in Lafayette at Cajun Dome against Cleveland and lost by 20. And then the second one we played in Mobile a week later at the Civic Center against Orlando and beat them 75-72 in overtime. Wow. And that was the last one in Fran- that was the last one in franchise history, That's but I true. do remember beating Rusty Russell. I do remember being um Rusty Russell and um who was the big tall guy that played O-line D-line for the Preds cuz he was like literally a whole foot and a quarter taller than I was. Go. I- and I'm I'm 5'8". Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at their roster. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to. If I saw the name, I'd probably remember. And if he's listening to this, I sincerely apologize. He probably knows who, probably knows who I'm talking about too. But you know, playing in playing in Mobile, and you know, and those those experiences of you know loading unloading the bus, you know, setting up a locker room, setting up a football locker room. You know, it was great. And there were a couple of times like in that season where Keith just let me. You know, he's like, you got this? I'm like, yeah, I got it. And I set the locker room up and decided what we wore and everything like that. So what many people don't know is that we were Oregon in, with the night in 92. Yeah. We were Oregon before Oregon was Oregon, and here's why. Okay. We were the first team in professional football history that had three game uniforms. Really? Yes. So we had a purple jersey. Oh, I'm sorry, we had a, a, an orange jersey. Yeah. A navy jersey and a white jersey, and then we had navy pants and white pants, and then we had white navy and orange socks. And Keith always let me pick out the color combination. So, if you go back and if if ever the videos from if ever just more than just the video from of us playing in Orlando, our last game in franchise history, which I'm I'm almost over thirty years later, and I'm still mad about that game. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I'll talk about that game in a few well, minutes. Well, there's the the game, um, the game versus the home game versus Cleveland is also on YouTube. From ninety ninety two, it, it is. I just I have it, it's right. That was the first one I found, yeah. and I hadn't been. I still can't. I can't find it. But if I can find it again, it'd be awesome. At some point, I think I don't know if it was a Cleveland or I can't remember if it was against Cleveland, Tampa, Detroit, Orlando, where the door fell on top of me. What? Yeah, so lock. Are we talking the locker room point, door? No, the door to the field. Oh, the door to the field. <laughs> yes, because the wall. Okay, because the walls of the Superdome were wooden, and then they were they were bolted down to the floor. Oh man, we didn't play. We didn't have hockey boards in the dome. That's right. So I'm sick because I even even to this day, like it, it doesn't matter whether it was any type of indoor arena football or whatnot. If I was the equipment manager, I always work the door. Okay. Okay. It just—it's one of those things. Every equipment guy, no matter what league he's in, if there's an equipment guy on the team, he works the door. Okay. So here I am. I'm holding the door. I'm, I'm standing by my door. I open and close it, whatever. And 
there was a play. It was coming from, it was coming like we were going uh, away from our bench, from the door. I think we were going toward away from the end of the bench that I was on because I was on the far end closest to our locker room. Um, and the play was coming from the right side by the, the fans and then coming over to the left. And somehow the guy, our, our guy got tackled into the door. The door came off the hinges and was on top of me. And they were on top of me for about two seconds. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I got up and I'm like, they're like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Wow. Are you sure? I'm like, dude, I'm fine. <laughs> Put the door back on the thing on the wall. Let's play. Let's go. <laughs> you know, I got. I, I really I was like. At some point, I'm gonna find that video, and people are just gonna be like, "Hey, that's the idiot that you know, it's the idiot the door fell off." Was that guy on the arena fan thing? Um, but yeah, man. I mean, it was. You know, to get back to your question, it, it was. What was crazy was like the my first game that when we played uh, our exhibition game against against Cleveland, you know, and. Dave Winham and them, they're coming off of their, you know, their, their O for season in 91, yeah. you know, and they got a win and it was their first win in almost a, a year and a half, like on the calendar. Well, they were excited. They act like they won the arena bowl. Right. <laughs> and just like, I, I knew about the game and, you know, like Walt knew about it, you know, Brian did, but our other coaches had no clue about, about anything about arena football. They had never been to an arena football game and, Quite truthfully, neither had I. Mm-hmm. I'd always just seen it on television. Right. So my first in-person arena football game was in April of 1992, you know, <laughs> in Lafayette, Louisiana, at Gage Dome against the against the Thunderbolts. And Vegas, God rest them, had no had dude had no clue what was going on. Like it's it's a it's professional football, so it's a preseason game. It's a preseason game. Yeah. Not a preseason scrimmage. And so Vegas thought we, you know, when it got down to halftime that we weren't going in the room, that we were going to continue playing like off a script. And like, like, like Vegas, this, this is a game. He's like, well, I thought we were going to run plays and they were going to run plays. And I guess college. And we're like, coach, this is not college football. This is pro football. Well, I realize that, but I mean, coach, we mean going to halftime and make adjustments, man. Let's go. Um, but yeah, man, it was, yeah, it was, it was nuts. And like, I think the field we used was the predators field, if I'm not mistaken. Like we used our walls and dasher pads, but then I can't remember if it was Cleveland's. I, I don't know if we actually paid for Cleveland to have their field ship down or was it Orlando? I think it may have been Orlando because of McBath's relationship with the guys that own the Predators at that point. That would kind of make sense, too, was... because, you know, people need to remember, too, and if you, you know, if you're only technically a newbie to the AFL, back then the league was very high on promoting the, the league, and if there's a possibility of maybe getting an ownership group or a potential ownership group, you have exhibition games wherever they could, so mm-hmm. they could possibly get these new teams in future seasons, so... Yeah, I mean, if you think back to those, I think it was the barnstorming season in what eighty eight or eighty nine. Eighty nine, you know, eighty nine, you know, where the league didn't have, we had we we had four teams in the league, but we didn't have home we didn't have home venues. I mean, it was almost like, you so you know, if you think back to, you know, the two thousand one season when uh, Leslie when uh, Leslie Alexander gave up ownership of the Thunder Bears, but the league wanted to keep a team in Houston for some reason. 
And they're like, but we have no place to play, but we're going to keep you there. Um, and man, if you ever get a chance to talk to Troy Stelly or, um, or, uh, oh, what's Gov's, um, Chris Pomerantz. Okay. If you can ever find Troy Stelly or Chris Pomerantz, they were the two equipment guys. Goody would probably know where they are. Um, I know Troy's in Texas and I think so is Gov. Um, Gov's in Houston. That's right. And Troy's like, um, like in the Austin area. Um, it's possible. possible Jerry, you two got, it's possible Jerry Trice might know. Yeah, probably. I'm sure. I, no, I know Jerry would know. I know coach would know. Yeah. Um, but those two guys, I mean, they were the equipment guys for the Thunder Bears, you know, their barnstorming year. I'm betting, like, Troy Troy and, and Gov are probably full of stories from the nightmare of that season because that was, <laughs> I know for a fact, that was not fun for them. Um, what I, God, man, you bring me. This has been a, this a long time ago, dude. I know. I mean, you bring it back some. I'm, I'm diving deeper into the memory warehouse. <laughs> tonight, man. What I wanted to know, you're talking about, and as I said, you probably. I said, if I can learn one new thing about uh, anybody working in the AFL, you just you. I think you you told you know you let everybody know now that New Orleans had three jerseys. At any point, did Mickey Gidry say, "No, no, 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 I want to wear this jersey," or was no. it only up to you guys? No, it was up to me. Okay, not you guys. It was up to me. Okay, Mickey had no say so over nothing. <laughs> Mickey wasn't even there half the time because, you know, he got married and like Mickey missed like three games of that season because he got married and went on a honeymoon with his wife. Mm-hmm. And then uh, no, he missed two games for that. So he missed a game for the wedding and then missed a game for the honeymoon. So Doug Freeman was our quarterback. And I can't remember who was back up. His backup was some. There were a the few. Midwest. He had, That's he all he I had can Keaton Morales and Wiggins also that year. Who, yeah. Who, who, yeah. Who, who threw passes. So. Okay, yeah. Danny, was it Danny Keaton, I think it was? Uh, it was, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I remember him and uh, Brian Wiggins. You know, I think he played a little bit of quarterback before going to play for the, the Patriots there in New England there for yeah. a little while. Uh, Pre-Belichick years, pre, pre-Parcells years, yeah. I think. So um, what, what happened? Was, he was a good dude, too, by the way. What happened to these jerseys? How many times did you wear each of these jerseys? Because I'm a uniform guy. And I'm curious to know, did you, did you have a chance to wear every single color Jersey that year or because, yes. you know, you guys wearing a burnt ish orange or whatever color orange you call no, it. That was definitely not burnt orange, Tim. That was orange, buddy. Okay. So, are, so are we, we, talking, had to, we had, to, we're not talking Tampa Bay creamsicle orange, are we? Uh, a little bit darker than that, but not much. Okay. Albany so, Firebirds orange. So our, all, all about around all, Albany Firebirds orange, yeah. Okay. So our colors were officially uh, sunset orange. There you go, sunset. Moon, moonlight white and midnight navy. There it is. Okay. And so, yeah, and and so kind of like I said, I mean Keith kind of left it up to me as to decide the the colors, and nobody ever complained about our uniform choices because the crazy thing is that with as goofy as our logo was on the helmets mm-hmm. with the crescent moon and the star and everything and the name and the name, which by the way, yeah. like if you're going to start a professional sports team, don't ever name this professional sports team as like a mode of the day <laughs> or when you're going to play. If you name it, <laughs> yeah, because if, if you name it the night, it was the new Orleans night. Oh, it's in the nights. Like nights, like with the, no, N I G no, 
the night. So I can't know, dude. N I G H T like the night. Yeah. Like, like really? Like you name it? Yeah. Don't ever name like you, give your give your team name like you know something powerful. Well, they know? did. Not the night. They did. The future, as, as we all know, the future. You know, the the future franchise in New Orleans had probably one of the best branding yes. ever when it came. You know, when yes. when, when with yes. the, with and, the and, for. Yes, yes. So. A lot of a lot of great people. Um, prior, you know, a lot of a lot of great people worked for that organization on on the field. Pat O'Hara, Mike New, mm-hmm. Kevin Porter, mm-hmm. you know, Derek Stingley. I mean, the the list of names just goes on and on. You know, exactly. they had great players too. You know, so and the best logo. You know, and I'm not just saying that because I'm from New Orleans, but actually. <laughs> yes, I am. So now we need to get, if possible, we need to get some of these these home games. We got to see New Orleans in orange, man. I want to see that. Yeah, I I know. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember. I know we wore. I think it may have been the game against Cleveland that we came out in. I think we came out in orange and white that game. Okay. I know there was one game. I know there was one game where I did a navy on navy. Um, there was, you I never monochrome. did. Navy, I, wow. I never, From, and monochrome. Yeah. I did Navy on monochrome early. Yeah. You know, and I, that back in the early nineties was not much. You didn't see that all that often. Yeah. And I did. And I, 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 I did the stormtrooper way back when too. I did white on white on white. Oh, as a matter of fact. Wow. Um, um, I did. Yeah. Cause I think our best color, honestly, like I, I really did not like the orange jerseys. Like mm-hmm. they were horrible. I mean, like it just, they were just look. I, I'm a, I grew. I'm a grew up a Saints fan, and the you know prior to the realignment, putting the Bucks in our division, like yes, I like Bucko and Bruce. I like the cream sickle and white, except when I saw it in person, and then it's just like kind of just turned my stomach. And like seeing like everything in our organization that like we tried to avoid orange in our organization as much as possible. All right. Like everything that we did was either navy or white, <laughs> and really, like the navy, the, the navy, the navy jerseys were pro- the navy jersey and the white jersey were our two best ones. But we hardly ever wore the navy jersey. I think we only broke it out like one time at home. Okay. The rest of the time it was, you know, it was white. I think I did like an orange over white, an orange over navy. I did a navy on navy. I did white over navy. I think at one point. Um, yeah, I did like Navy, white Navy. I mean, like it was crazy, you know, like here is 1992. Nobody would think of this stuff, yeah, but al- you know, here we jerseys? were. Exactly. You know? Alternate jerseys yeah. did not exist yeah. back then. Yeah. It was just crazy. Like somebody had the forethought to like, because our three colors were so prominent and we, you know, I mean, the colorway was, you know, if you, if you're looking, okay, so you're a unifile, I'm a unifile. Mm-hmm. And so I'm big into aesthetics as well. And, you know, from like a color combination standpoint, you know, you look at the colorways that we had with the night and really nobody, look, man, I got lucky in the fact that, so I got to work for the night in 92 and our colors were navy, white, and orange. Mm-hmm. Then I go to, then I go to Milwaukee in 2000 and our colors are purple, teal, black, and white. Yep. Come on, man. Yeah. Then in, then in Tampa Bay in 2001, navy, gold, and white. Then I go to Green Bay in 03 in the, the, the blizzards first year. And with the stop in between, uh, I was briefly with uh, with Macon in, in 
in, uh, before I went to Green Bay. And, you know, you look at Macon's colors, and that was like, you know, like uh, blue and gold. Like dark Vegas. Yeah, like dark Vegas, powder blue, black, white, right? And then in Green Bay, we had green, silver, and white. Yep. Like, I got so lucky. I, I got so lucky with some of my with some of the teams that I worked for with the colorways that we used. You know, now like the high school that I'm, I'm coaching out here in South Carolina. I mean, our cur- our colors are are purple and black. I'm like, heck yes, let's go! Like, there's <laughs> really cool stuff you could do with purple and black. Man. Yeah. Purple, black, and silver is our colorway here at Darlington, and I'm like. Let's go because we could do so many cool, we do so many cool things. I'm so glad I got to design our baseball hat this what year. What was because... one of the things that you wanted to do in '92? You really wanted to do, whether it was a change, whether it was an addition to a, uh, what's something that you wanted to do that the team just said no? Win a game. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's the God's honest truth. Yeah. That's the guys. I, like I had never been part of a losing season in my life. Like even playing rec ball, growing up, and to go through that season. I mean, the, I, I think the only thing that the only other thing I would probably say is pay me more money than mm-hmm. what I got paid. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it I wouldn't change. But I mean, yeah, to win a game and, and make more than I like. I worked for the night for 12, 14 weeks. I got paid five hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I was for all intents and purposes, I was a paid intern. Yeah. Um. But, you know, um, to be 19 years old and work for a professional football team at home, and thinking that I'm never going to be able to work for the Saints, you know, I'm like, this is as close as I'm going to get. I may as well take it. You know. I mean, yeah. That's the only two things I'd be. I really first and foremost is actually win a freaking game. Yeah. And then you know. If I got paid a little bit more, my social life would have been better when I was 19. <laughs> maybe girls would maybe girls would have liked me if I got paid for drinks at the bar, but instead the players paid for it. But anyway, of the uh, of the five home ga- five uh, road games that you had that year, and I know you mm-hmm. have a story about Orlando, but of the five home game, uh, five road games that you had that year, what is the one that stands out the most? Charlotte, Tampa, Albany, Albany. No, I think that well, Tampa, Tampa and Albany. Okay. okay, let me start with Albany first. Yeah. So uh, we go to upstate New York, play the Firebirds, and it just so happens that House is from upstate New York, and he has friends. So we went out. Me and the uh, I went out to dinner with the coaching staff that night, and like if you've ever met Walt Hausman back then, now Walt in his later days in arena ball, you know, lost a lot of weight because he had physical problems leading to his playing career, right? Mm-hmm. But Walt was a big guy because Walt was an offensive lineman. And so if you think about offensive linemen in the late 80s, early 90s, and run heavy outdoor, you know, run heavy, the run heavy, run heavy out of the NFL and the USFL and World League, like these are some big dudes. So imagine, you know, my semi fat self in the back of a cab next to Walt Hausman, <laughs> Ken Meyer, and, and Brian Gardner, and this guy, Joe Impostato, who was like our video slash ops guy. And so the five of us pile into a cab and we go to this Italian restaurant in the middle, like in some place in Albany, I can't even remember the name of the damn restaurant, but I just remember like, it was, it was a really, I just remember that dinner and then going out and then getting decimated by the firebirds the next night at the Pepsi center. But that I digress. Um, Tampa Bay was kind of, Tampa Bay was crazy because 
I think that was we were the home opener for them in '92. This is the year after they won the, their first Arena Bowl, right? Um, and so walking into what was then the Florida, now now the Trop, but the you know, Florida Suncoast Dome. Yep. Walking into and, and, and by the, just for you know just for clarification's sake, like I am a lifelong diehard baseball fan. Um, I got real fortunate in the fact I got to work in baseball as much as I did professional baseball as much as I did. I get to coach it now in high school. Um, but walking into the, walking into the trop and knowing that it was built specifically for baseball. Cause remember the trop was built to try to lure either the Cardinals, White Sox or giants to South Florida right. back in the late nineties, right. Or late eighties, early nineties. So the, the stadium, like the cutouts in the floor are configured for baseball. All the locker rooms are configured for baseball. So the two guys who were the equipment guys, I can't remember the names for the life of me, but they were, they worked for the Reds as their springtime jobs. But to make a little bit of extra money, they just, they became the equipment guys for the storm. So I talked like baseball with these guys. and They told me about what happens in major league clubhouses and stuff like that. So we go into the, we go into this building and like, I just look around and I'm like, Holy God, like this place can fit in the Superdome. Like it's, tiny but it's still big mm-hmm. at the same time because there's nothing in there except the field and like i just remember like how loud the crowd was and how they were into it and how close they were sitting even in thunderdome and and yes i'll use that term thunder thunderdome thunderdome lovingly even though we got that was a crazy game man i think like we lost that game like we were up by i think we were up like 35 7 i gotta go back and look at the I, if somebody could find a stats of this game, I would love to see it. Um, I think we're up like 35. This this was the best game we played this season, by the 41, way. 41-24 like we were up. up. What was it? 41-24 at halftime. Okay, so we were up 41. Thank you. We were up 41-24 at halftime. Okay. We're up 41. Now, mind you, like this is, I think, week two of the 92 season. So we just came off of a – if this is week two or week three. If it was week two – we had just come off a twenty-point loss um, against uh, against Charlotte. Yeah. If it was week three, was we week, had just come two. off of it was week two. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So we had just come out. We had, we played. Re- we didn't. We didn't play very well with Charlotte the week before, and that was a Sunday game, um, if I remember right. And then we turned around, and then had to play Saturday down in Tampa. Um, and so we're up forty-one twenty-four at the half, and I think we wound up losing like. 70, 75, 72 or something like that. 64, 60. I know. 64, 60. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So we gave up a lot of points in the second half. And I just remember like Groots just throwing all over us. There was a guy that played for the storm named Mark Zeno mm-hmm. and Mark Zeno played at Tulane university. And he's part of the reason why one of my favorite numbers is 11 because Zeno, because Mark wore, um, he was on the team at Tulane when we had Terrence Jones at quarterback. Um, and Mark was like one of my favorite players. And I got to see him beat the ever living bejeebus out of us over the top <laughs> because we kept playing the wrong coverage the whole night on him. Um, and Stevie Thomas. And I mean, all that, all those guys, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is like, there was a guy that played for us named Thomas Monroe, T row. He wore number 26. Um, T row. We had, Tampa had just released them in week one and we picked them up in week two because we were short, we were uh short runner. We were 
kind of like short, a wide receiver slash running back type of player. And so we picked T-Row up and like, I just remember him talking trash that whole game and it really didn't help, especially <laughs> the second half when Tampa came rolling back. But I mean, think about it, man. Like, this is the Storm's home opener in 92 and we're up 41-24 at the half and we wound up losing 64-60. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that Tampa scored over almost 40 points in the second half. It's like some teams, that's a game. Yeah, well, they, they blew you up by, <laughs> by 18 in the fourth quarter. Yeah, that, that's that's what killed us. Yeah, yeah our conditioning was terrible. Because <laughs> our guys like to go out and party. Oh, I gotta, yeah, speaking of that, I got to tell you about Orlando, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah well, I was going to say, you, you mentioned it before about certain things that can happen in the locker room and stuff like that. I mean, I guess it could depend on city to city and stuff like that, but this is the early days of the Arena Football League. But how crazy was this locker room in New Orleans? You know, <laughs> oh, God, I'm so glad that the statute of limitations on this stuff is all long gone, buddy, because we're talking over 30 years now. Uh, it was, it was a little, it was, it was a little, um, you know, it was, it it wasn't like out there, like an Ebby Calvin Nucleus type of out there, but I mean, we... We had our moments, yeah. you know, I mean, he got a, a cadre, he got a, a team of, you know, 20 somethings living in New Orleans for free and getting paid to play football. And there was a local bar called the Triangle West. It was, it's still there on Jefferson Highway, right down the street from, uh, right, right down the street from Mark 22 apartments, which is still there too. Um, and our guys, pretty much kept that place of business single-handedly that season. <laughs> um, you know, I won't name the player. Well, I don't know if he's ever going to hear this. So Doug no. Freeman was our backup quarterback behind Gidry, right? Yeah. So um, let's just say a personal issue prevented Doug from finishing the season with us in 92. I'll just say it at that. Okay. Um, you know, it's really weird when, you know, his wife flew to Denver and knocked on the door and dragged him out, kicking and screaming back to Denver to her kids. But anyway, um, you didn't hear me say that. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, it was it was crazy, man. I mean, you know, there. Uh, I don't know about how much I can talk about. No, that's fine. That way. No, but, I get it, and, and I always understand. You're even though we're all a part in some way, a part of the Arena Football family. We mm-hmm. we know stories. A lot of stories cannot be told in public. Whether you yeah. cha- whether you change the name of the innocent or the guilty to save their, you know to save face, to, <laughs> so they keep anonymous. But I get and I and I think everybody who's heard this historical series understands that. You know, it's it's something that yeah. may, that would come out in a book. And I'm sure there are many players. Yeah. If we had books <laughs> galore, man, that that everybody could write. So yeah, and well, I understand the, that. I understand. The, the cr- uh, oh, so we had, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, like you know, we had a player almost miss a game because he fell asleep at the side of the pool because he was drunk and sunburnt and wound up being one of the best players in that game for us. Um, yeah, that actually happened. So, um, and he came to the dome. <laughs> and you got to remember something like Harahan's, you know, on a regular day without traffic. Yeah. You know, Harahan's about a thirty, like about twenty, twenty-five minute drive from the Superdome. Um, he hops in a cab and makes it into the dome five minutes before kickoff, misses the 
he has his name announced as the start as one of the starters doesn't show up. We're like, where is he? He's not here. I go run to the locker room, pick up the phone, call the dude and go, Hey dude, where are you at? He's like, Oh bleep. Yeah. Oh bleep. Okay. I'm coming. Like he missed pregame meal and everything. Cause he got trashed at the pool with girls mm-hmm. and followed Jack Daniels and got sunburned. And he's about as red as a, about as red as red can be for a human being. <laughs> um, you, so. you have, and you've, you've, I think you've told part of the story before when we, if everybody frequents the uh, premieres of uh, Arena Football TV on YouTube. Um, but as everybody can see, Orlando, that last game in Orlando, which which happened to be the, the, the very last game in, in Knight's history. Uh, sorry, Knight. Oh, not even I'm doing it. Knight history. Yeah, Knight. Um, I mean, the team gets blown out you know, 62 to eight, but there's a lot more than what that score actually says. <laughs> God. Man, look, okay. So that game was what? That was June of 1992, right? July, July 9th. Yeah. July, July. 9th. yeah. July 9th. Okay. So July 4th weekend. No, 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 no. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. And, and, and the July, it was July 31st. Oh, July 31st. Okay. Yeah. You All right. Play, good. You played so Orlando okay, good. at home on the 11th. But this is the last game of the year. Okay. Okay. Uh, and they killed us in that game too. Um, and that was part of like a three-game homestand in the division. And it was like back-to-back against Charlotte, Tampa, and, or Charlotte. It was like it, no, it was Charlotte, Tampa, and Detroit. I think was in that homestand or something like that. Anyway, so last game of franchise history. We know the team's folding, um, possibly moved. You know, whatever. Um, everybody's give a care is flipped to beyond the off position mm-hmm. and we're just ready to get the thing over with. Yeah. Um, we still got to practice, you know, cause this is professional football after all. Um, and something that was kind of unbeknownst to me at the time, um, you know, we practiced in t-shirts and shorts and helmets that whole week. And our meetings in total were probably about 45 minutes because we knew we were going to, we pretty much knew we were going to get decimated by Orlando anyway. Right. Right. So, so I basically went into the game real, just super duper nonchalant. Um, and this is how you know things are going to go bad for you. So we had an offensive defensive lineman by the name of Earl Thomas, or number 65, played at Jackson State. So they announce him in the starting lineup, and he runs out, and he's got both birds flying, <laughs> telling people what to go do themselves. And I'm like, bro, you're going to get us killed. Shut up. He's like, I don't give a flip. So that's how that game started off. Um, but, you know, let's preface it by saying what happened the night before because the entire team went out to the club the night before. Right. The entire team. I stayed in my hotel room because I was broke. Um, and girls don't like me anyway. Didn't like <laughs> me at that point. Um so I was very socially awkward, <laughs> even at 19. Um, and so, <laughs> and so the whole team went out, come back, they, they come back in the, they come back in the hotel, I don't know, somewhere like around between one and three in the morning. Um, <laughs> we, um, you know, and pregame meal doesn't exist because the league owns us. So they're like, just basically, you know, bare bonesing the whole thing. Now we did stay in a very nice hotel. I think it was the Omni that's like right next that was like right next to the old the the old uh, arena. Yeah. Um, 
super nice hotel. Like it was beautiful. Right. And I just remember like going into the arena and, you know, I was kind of a magic fan because of Shaq and, um, and everything and, and Penny and, and those guys. And so like, you know, I've walked by the, the magic soccer and everything and thinking it was like super cool. Um, and go stand on that sideline, that tiny little sideline box that they had at the old building and where a whole bunch of drunken, toothless people who live in Orange County who were drunk and stand on top of you and yell dispersion comments at you the whole game because you're not a predator. Um, yeah, so that was fun. And that's about all I can say about that. It was they dropped the they, they dropped the champ. They knew, I guess they knew they, they had a premonition that they were going to win the the, the the Southern Division Championship because they dropped a banner on us in the third, the middle of the third quarter. Oh my god! It's on. Yeah, you, did you not? You were watching that game. No, you didn't watch that game. Okay, so if anybody decides to go watch that game, fast forward through to the middle, about the middle of the third quarter, and at some point, um, because they had to have Tampa lose to Detroit that night, I think right. it was. Yeah. And so if Tampa lost to Detroit and it was kind of inevitable, inevitable, they were going to beat us anyway. So they dropped the banner and played, we are the champions, put spotlights up on the banner in the middle of the flipping game. <laughs> That's so disrespectful. I mean, you have, you have teams these days that are complaining that players are dancing on their logos and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this and, Everybody who's not an Orlando Predator fan will agree with me on this. Yeah. To this day, I don't. I, I, I look. I respect the heck out of Ben Bennett. He's a really good guy. He's a very good football coach. He was one hell of a quarterback. But I hate that team that he's the head coach of right now. <laughs> I hate that team in Orlando. I love the city of Orlando. I had fun when I lived when I lived in Tampa and got to go to got to drive to Orlando just for the hell of it. Look, I ain't never had a bad time in Orlando. And sports fans in Orlando aren't as bad as the ones in Atlanta. But I hate Predators. I hate the team. I hate that stupid logo. The claw guy. Welcome to the jungle. Jay Gruden for going there. My former roommate Shane Stafford for playing for him. I don't hate Shane. Shane's a good guy. Um, Shane deserves a shot. If anybody's listening to this and can, wants to hire a head coach, you need to hire Shane. He deserves it. He's a great head. Co- he's a great ball coach and a good dude too. Yeah. Um, and if anybody but, and if I anybody mean, wants to to listen to the interview that we did with him on this historical series, go back into the archives and check it out. There you go. Shane was my roommate in Tampa, along with Clint Hart in nineteen in uh, two thousand one in Tampa, and two really great dudes. Even though Clint always wore my clothes, um, <laughs> and both of them, you know, as soon as we get done in Tampa, you know, both of them wound up going to the NFL. You know, Shane had a cup of coffee with Cleveland. Um, and Clint, you know, played in the Super Bowl for the Eagles. So, you know, not too bad of a yeah. career. You know, he's living, you know, they're doing great together. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with both of them on Facebook. So, um, even though I still harbor the resentment at Clint for wearing my clothes all the time, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I had a Florida Gators t shirt that Clint would always come into my room and take. I'm like, why are you wearing my clothes? Because I've got nothing else clean. That's not my problem. Well, I'll cut your hair for free. Okay. <laughs> Trade um, but yeah, I mean, I can't, I hate, I just, I, yeah, I'm so glad. Like I worked in the Tampa side of the war on I-4. I'll, I'll always be eternally grateful to Tim for hiring me and letting me be a part of that series. But man, I could not stand going to that building. <laughs> oh God, well, I couldn't. I just, when you, when you heard, when it was finally said and done that the team was not coming back, um, 
I mean, you'd worked, uh, you know, in uh, being an equipment manager before, but being that this was one of the things that you had checked off on your list, how did you feel? Were you automatically trying to get, talk to the people that you know, so you can try to get another job elsewhere? Or did you? No, because, because at that point, uh, I was still in college. Um, you know, I got, I was very fortunate that my parents, you know, early on in my education took care of it for mm-hmm. me. Um, and I was living at home with them and, you know, they let me, let, let me do this. I mean, my dad, God rest him, worked for Delta for 38 years. So that's how I paid for my road trips with the night. Okay. Um, I didn't have to pay for, I didn't have to pay to fly. I just flew my privileges. Um, you know, and I, I, my parents were like, they were really great. They were understanding and they really, you know, they were like really proud of me for doing this, this thing. I was just, I was deeply disappointed because, you know, I thought arena football could work in New Orleans if it was done right back then. Um, you know, and to have to go in, you know, after coming back and getting decimated by Orlando the way we did and to come back home that afternoon, you know, I think we played down there on a Saturday you know, we come back on a Sunday and Keith and I go straight over to the school and we start boxing everything up to get put in storage because we don't know what's going to happen to right. it. And, um, it's tough. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I gotta admit, Tim, this is the first time I've ever gotten emotional about it when I'm sitting thinking about it. Um, it hurt, man. It really did. Um, being a fan of arena football and being a part of it in New Orleans and, you know, just, I, I never thought I'd be able to get back to pro football again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I got away, you know, I got away from it and, um, you know, I went to Nickel State for a semester in the spring of 94 and was a football manager there um, in between stints with the New Orleans Zephyrs and, you know, uh, never thinking I was going to try to, you know, never thinking I was going to get back in, you know, into professional football and, and, you know, seeing basically our franchise rights, like transferred to Miami for the Hooters their first year in 93 and thinking, shit, that could have been us, you know, still playing. Yeah. You know, did you, uh, I I know you, you had your helmet. Did you take anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I still had my zoo, but when I walked away, I had a couple of t-shirts. My brother still has a, has a t- has a pair of shorts that I gave him, which is amazing. And he still wears them from time. I don't know if he wears them anymore. Um, uh, and just some of the collateral material, like, um, we had a, a bumper sticker. It was an orange bumper sticker with Navy blue writing on it. That says the year of fear. Yep. What the hell did that mean? I don't know, but you know, it was all over our collateral materials and you know, I kept that and I think the media guide at some point and then I lost it all on Katrina. So, uh, um, but I still have one of my footballs too. I still have one of the, the Spalding Ironman footballs. Yep. So they can say, even I'm though, very, very, even though they only used the Spalding balls in 91, they had so many of them. They had to use them in '92, anyways, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think we use them in practice, and I think we use them in the games. So, um, but yeah, I think I had. I think 
I know I have a spalling ball at the house. I know that. So thus concludes part one of the episode with Steve Smith. And as I said, um, it's it's very extensive, but it, it, he is able to give so much detail and inside information to what he's able to do with the teams and stuff like that. And to be honest with you, uh, the one tidbit that he mentioned about the New Orleans night and how many uniforms that they had, I did not even know that part. So that that was something new to me. And as I've always said, if I'm able to learn something new in every episode, then I will be then I'll be you know very happy with the with the episode itself. So again, stay tuned for the second part of this episode. Um, if you happen to miss any of our uh, previous episodes, uh, you can head over to any of the uh, uh, podcast podcast aggregates uh, that are located on the net, um, including if you head over to SoundCloud. Um, that's where uh, we usually host these things for uh, a couple of weeks. Um, but there are all are also other places where you can uh, uh, where you can catch up. And those other places include uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and the audio version is also over on YouTube. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or uh, want to suggest uh, anybody to come on future episodes of this historical look back at the Arena Football League, please email us at aflrewind at arenafan.com. So please stay safe. Try to stay healthy and do what's necessary, even if it does mean wearing a mask, even though you may not want to. But uh, we will all get through this and be able to get together once again in the very near future. So for everybody here at AFL Rewind, I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net. <laughs>